as you guys have noticed over the last few weeks, and I, I hope it's been encouraging to you, we've tried to bring different people up here to kind of talk about how, just how Christ has been victorious in their life. We're, we're looking forward to the day where Jesus is finally victorious, but we also believe that all of those, that, that final victory, there's all kinds of little victories in the lives of people that are gonna to lead to that one great day. And so if you look up there, there's all kinds of different pictures. That's what it represents of the different people that have shared and the one that, uh, that I'm excited about hearing today is the one here with the periodic table. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Nothing better than a periodic table to get things cranking in here. And so this is, this is Bob Krychek. Um, I have grown to love him because he and I both have a passion for things around that periodic table. But I'm going to turn him loose just to share how Christ was victorious in his life. So thanks, Bob. Good morning, Cornerstone. I have been a part of this assembly of believers since either 2008 or 2009, not sure. And it's been great to be a part of a body like this. It's been great to hear the biblical teaching of our pastors during this time. It's been very encouraging. But my life hasn't always been like that. As a matter of fact, the, the phrase that I think describes my life in short is from chaos to cosmos. And I didn't explain that in the first service, so I'm going to explain it now. Cosmos is the Greek word which means order. It's the word which is translated world, and it's also translated adornment in our New Testaments. And that is the story of my life. So let me start with the chaos. As a child, I went with my family to church, but I never knew God. As a matter of fact, Honestly, whether God existed or not was totally irrelevant to me. It just didn't seem to make any difference to my life, whether there was a God. But during that period of time, I was drawn like a magnet to math and science. I found that there was such order in math and in science. And you may not be like me in that respect, but I appreciated the fact that because math and science went by various laws and rules, that you could predict the outcome. You could know what was expected when you were working in those realms. And I liked that certainty. I liked that order. And that's where the periodic table comes in, because if you know anything about the periodic table, if you ever had to take chemistry in high school or biology or something else, you probably have seen it. They call it a table because it takes all of the fundamental elements that we know of that make up everything material in creation, and it identifies them as building blocks and shows how they fit together, how they don't fit together. There's such order in it and I was very attracted to that order. So the periodic table is a good illustration of where I was in that phase of my life. But admittedly, my interest in it, as much as it seemed orderly, it was darkened because I couldn't see anything behind that order. I couldn't see why it was that there were laws and rules that were predictable that led to expected outcomes. All of that I was blind to. I also didn't know what to expect from people. 
And I'm sure all of you can relate to the fact that people can be quite unpredictable. Because of that fact, I was very awkward in social relationships. And so if I were to kind of sum up that portion of my life, I'd say I was introverted, I didn't care much for people, didn't care at all for God, and I was totally absorbed in math and science. And sure enough, if you look in a dictionary and you find the definition that all of these characteristics describe, I was a geek. <laughs> and I was a geek before that term was even popular. This kind of climaxed in high school. I was in a biology class. Biology is not my favorite science, but I was in it and I was, had just finished a, a unit on genetics. I had to write a little paper. And my teacher wrote on my paper, you sound like a eugenicist. Now, I didn't know at the time what a eugenicist was. I had to go look it up. But in case you don't know what a eugenicist is, this was a so-called branch of science in the early 20th century that was determined to improve the genetic characteristics of the human race. And I think you already know where I'm going with this. There were some very negative side effects of the eugenics movement, one of which was Planned Parenthood. The founder of Planned Parenthood was not only a eugenicist herself, but employed people who believed in this, and they thought that one of the ways to improve the human race was to prevent the birth of children who were defective, who were just not up to par some way, or who were, say, the children of minorities who were in very bad positions in life. That's what eugenics can produce. The most outstanding example of eugenics, of course, is the Nazi movement in World War II, where they decided that it was good to purge the world of inferior races. And this is what I honestly sounded like in high school. Now, I'm not saying that I would have gone into eugenics because I wasn't really interested in biology, thank God. But that is the direction that my life was headed. That was what was significant to me. And because I didn't know that there was a God and I didn't believe that there was an absolute right or wrong, the idea that we could improve the human race genetically sounded like it made sense. And again, I can sum it up in this way. Science was my God. And Mr. Spock of Star Trek was its prophet. Now, it was at this point in high school that God decided to completely change the trajectory of my life. And one verse kind of stands out to me as representing what happened to me at that point. It is Romans chapter 10, verse 20. And it says this. Then Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. That was me. I wasn't seeking God. I wasn't asking for God. I didn't want to have anything to do with God. The only thing that changed that, by the grace of God, was that I had a friend. Now, as a geek, you can imagine I didn't have many friends. 
But I did have one good friend, and he was persistent. And he kept inviting me to a youth Bible study. That was the last thing I wanted to do. I, I really had absolutely no interest. And I kept on saying no politely because he was my friend. And eventually he wore me down. So I went to this Bible study, and I was confronted with the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ for the first time in my life. Maybe I heard it when I was a kid going to church. I'm not sure, but I wasn't ready for it then, certainly. But God made me ready for it in high school. And I turned to Jesus Christ, and I received the forgiveness of my sins. And the scales fell from my eyes, to use that biblical expression. And I finally saw the person who ordered all of those laws and principles and rules that I so delighted in. I saw the person who was responsible for the fact that the world is an orderly place. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 2, creation started out in chaos. It said it, the world, or the world, uh, yeah, the world was without form and void. It was formless in its beginning. But God, through the creative process of the six days, brought about this marvelous creation. And I don't know about you, but when I step outside and I listen to the birds singing and I see hummingbirds and butterflies and all these different things that are part of creation, I marvel, and I marvel so much more now because I know who it was that was responsible for it. It's, it's wonderful. But he didn't stop there. He not only gave me an understanding that God is the orderer of all things, he turned my chaos into cosmos. He took me from being someone who had very little in the way of friends, very little concern for the human race, very little concern for anything except myself, and he made me one of his own children. He forgave my sins. He made me part of the body of Christ. He gave me shepherds to lead me in the right path. He did so many things for me, and my chaos, bit by bit, is turning into cosmos. It's turning into order. Just as God took the chaos of the original creation and made it into something beautiful, he's doing the same thing in the new creation in my life. And I have just two thoughts to leave with you. One is, science is not bad. I still really appreciate science. But science can be a wonderful servant. As a matter of fact, Isaac Newton, one of the great early scientists, was the one who said, my goal is to think God's thoughts after him. And that's what science ought to be, rightly understood. So science is not bad. It makes a wonderful servant. It makes a terrible God. You can trust me on that. The last thing is, the persistence of my friend made all the difference in the world. So be a persistent friend to somebody. And if you don't know Jesus Christ today, don't resist any persistent friends that you might have because they're offering you something wonderful. Thank you.
For those of you that are new, um, welcome. I know I saw a few new faces, but uh, excited to see you. But here's what we're going to be doing. If uh, you got your Bibles, we'd love for you to open them up to the book of uh, Revelation, chapter 6. We're going to be continuing through that. Um, if you need a Bible, the guys coming down the aisle right now would be happy to get you a Bible. You can just raise your hand and, uh, and they'd be happy to put one in there. If uh, you don't have a Bible, keep it. Uh, we'd love for you to, to be able to have it. But what we've been trying to do is to study the book of Revelation and we've been trying to study it from the vantage point of seeing it from its big picture. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed a lot of times is when we study a book like Revelation that's a prophetic, it's an apocalypse, uh, as we begin to look at it, sometimes we can get lost in all the minutiae and kind of not understand fully what's going on. And so one of the things we've been trying to do is to take big chunks of it to help us to understand in a, hopefully a greater way kind of what it is that God is trying to tell us in and through this particular book of the Bible, the Revelation. Now today what I'm going to try to do, and so you're just going to have to go with me a little bit, we're going to look at this idea of suffering. Now I think whenever we see the concept of suffering, oftentimes what comes into my head or comes into other people's heads is why do we suffer? It's a question that's kind of plagued everybody and people have written on it and talked about it and we've tried to answer questions and a lot of times when I'm sharing Jesus with people, this is one of the big things that they want to know about is why suffering? Why do people suffer? When people do suffer, does God care? Is he there? Is he aware of what's going on? In other words, these are the questions that are oftentimes going on inside of people's heads. They really do want to know in the midst of suffering, is there a God who knows what's happening? And even this, I would say this, this is the question, has God somehow lost control in the midst of our suffering and our difficulty? Now, I think part of our problem is, and this is where I'm going to try to kind of sneak in here a little bit to go after some things, is number one, I think part of the reason that we struggle through it is we don't understand suffering like we need to. I think a lot of times, especially like in pop kind of Christian culture, there's this idea that those people that are Christians is that we're going to come to Jesus, and even when I hear Bob talk, and I know he wasn't saying this, but we're thinking, oh, by the time we come to God, everything is going to be ponies and puppies and unicorns and rainbows, and everything is going to be just fine. But those of you that have walked with Jesus Christ long enough, you know this, it isn't long before you learn that the same suffering that those that don't know Jesus experience, we experience too. Now here's the contrast. At the end of the day, the difference between the suffering of those that know God and don't know God is in its purpose behind suffering. See, the Bible is very clear that as we go through different trials, is the suffering that we walk through as followers of Jesus Christ, it doesn't now in any way detract us in fact what it does is as suffering comes into our lives we become more and more mature and we begin to look like Jesus God also brings suffering and difficulty in our life not because he's actually a bad God but actually because he's a good God and sometimes what he needs to do as a father is he needs to correct us but what we're going to really look at today and this is one of the things that I want to just I want to zero in on in this particular text is that God allows suffering in the world to show us who we really are. And what I mean by that is, is that those that go through suffering well are going to be identified as truly one of his, and those that don't go through suffering well are going to be identified potentially as those that don't even know him. 
Now that's a pretty interesting thing to lay out, and I'm going to kind of keep us walking through this a little bit, but at the end of the day, this is what we're trying to understand is why suffering, and inserted into this text in the book of Revelation, is exactly this concept. Now we've been walking it through, and here's been kind of our roadmap that we're going through, so let me try to kind of hang us in where we're going to be at today. If you look at it, number one, number four, and number seven, is we're going to look at this idea that God is seeking to reveal to us this concept that what goes on behind the scenes, I would say this, in our suffering. So as we suffer, and we're asking the question, what's happening, John, through looking at the apocalypse, is going to actually show us a little bit about what it means to go through suffering. The second thing is, is he's going to talk about this group of people called his servants. What Christian spoke on way back in Revelation 1.1 is that these people that are going to follow Jesus are his servants, these ones that are truly his. But the other thing that I don't want you to miss is at the very end, we're going to tie this in because we're going to be going through some pretty difficult stuff and you're going to think, you've got to be kidding me. Where's finally the good news? When finally is the good news? There's going to be blessing at the end of this by the time we get to chapter 8, verse 1. Now, back in the Old Testament, okay, let me just set the stage for us. Back in the Old Testament, Malachi actually wrote about this, and he was, he was quoting God, and there was a group of people, and they're talking, and, and the idea was they're talking about what's going on in the world. Where's God? What is he doing? Well, by the time you get now to this verse 17, he tells them what he's doing. He's saying, I'm seeking to make those who are these ones that I have called out mine. I'm going to seek to make them, and I'm going to even, look what he says, this Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasure possession, I'll spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, look at this, you'll see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not serve him. In other words, I'm going to allow this to come to bear because I'm going to allow you to see the distinction between who are my people and who are not my people. Now, how is he going to do it? Here's some nice words for you. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So in other words, one group of people is going to experience what's going to happen to humanity and they are going to wither and cave. And another group, and I I don't know how many of you know this, I grew up on a farm and a ranch in Wyoming. When you see a calf coming out of the barn, it's like they're bouncing everywhere and everything is great. In other words, God says, I have an intent in all of this, and we're going to see the difference between the two. Is everybody with me? Now, it's not just the Old Testament that you see this. By the time we get to the New Testament in 1 Peter, Peter writes this to people. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to this great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Just gospel. Who by God's power, look at this, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What is he saying? Those of you that are his, what he began in you, he's not going to quit until he finishes. Look at this next part. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
He's saying exactly the same thing. He's saying that God is not afraid to bring trial upon the godly and the ungodly because at the end of it, the reality of who we are is gonna be tested and found out. And let me tell you something. The reason he says it's more precious than gold that can be tested by fire and even burned away is this. There is nothing more important than genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, here we go. I just wanna prove my point. This passage is going to be very important to where we're going today. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's a sermon, one of the last sermons that Jesus preaches while he's on earth. Now, this group of people are saying, when is he coming back? When are you going to come back? They're trying to understand the return of God. And Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. That's very important where we're going to go. Make sure no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they'll lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation to be put to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Who wants to come to know Jesus right now? And then many will fade away, look at this, and betray one another and hate one another. You see that? There are going to be groups of people that when this comes along, he says, are going to fade away. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But, and I love this, 13, the one who endures to the end will be what? Saved. Now listen to me. We are not saved by works. I don't want anybody to leave here thinking, oh great, now in order to make it to the very end, I've got to save myself. You cannot rescue yourself. But those who have been rescued by Jesus will make it to the end. Be with me. I think I'm trying to prove my point. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In other words, also through the midst of our suffering, just like Jesus suffered, this is going to take place on you, but it is going to be the means by which now the whole world is going to start to know about Jesus. You cannot advance the gospel without struggling and pain. Anybody want to follow Jesus? Amen. She does. The rest of you don't. Okay. Now, this is where the whole thing is kind of building up. And this whole idea through chapter 24 of Matthew is going to guide us in our understanding of Revelation. Now, the people that he's writing to were also going through great difficulty. And they're asking the same question, too. God, where are you? What's going on? Do you care what's happening in our life right now? They're asking these questions at the back of our head. And God almost teased this up now after he now takes them to the throne room in chapters 4 and 5. And then 6, we find out he has this scroll in his hand. It's handed to the lamb that was slain. And the lamb in chapter 6 is now going to pull it back. In other words, he's now going to bring to bear on this earth something unique. And when we get to chapter 6, what he says, and again, this is the question in the back of our head, what is the purpose of suffering? It says that I watched the lamb, and he opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, in a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, there's different groups of people that are going to look at this differently. So let me just kind of set the table. And again, I know I'm setting the table off at the beginning, but it's all going to come together at the end. 
There are some groups of people that look at this particular event and they're going to say this event has already happened. So there's a lot of godly people. One of the guys that I appreciate greatly that just passed away, a guy named R.C. Sproul, he believes this event actually already took place. Also, probably, there was another guy that was hugely formational in who I am, one of the greatest theologians that I think we're ever in the Americas, a guy named Jonathan Edwards. These two guys that I revere and love believe that this event already took place. Now, if you grew up in like a dispensational background, you're like, what? No, godly people believe this. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of it, but I'm just going to say this. In some ways, people within Christianity believe this already took place. There's also people that believe that this particular passage actually is going on right now. They would say that it's not so much a set of years, but this whole time, this tribulation, is from way back at the very beginning of the church until now, and it's playing itself all out. And finally, when Jesus Christ comes back, those that endure all of that and walk through this tribulation that comes upon the earth, they will be the ones that inherit the kingdom. Now, before you start saying what kind of people would think that, most of the people that were part of the Reformation believe that. In fact, all the reformers, in a lot of ways, probably held this particular view. And then there's other people, and I'll just let the cat out of the bag, this is my view, believe that this is going to be an event that's going to come in the future. We believe that somehow that there's a way in which this tribulation, that when it starts, is going to happen down the road, and it's going to be used by God in a way to bring about the end. So in other words, some people believe it has happened, is happening, or will happen, and there's people, when I talk about will happen, a lot of the early church fathers believe this, uh, guys in our time like John MacArthur, John Piper, they're people that believe this, and this is where Cornerstone sits. But listen to me. Regardless of your view where you stand standing here today, I think there are principles that we're gonna draw out of this that will draw us to an understanding of why suffering, and not only that, that will begin to answer the question that suffering is not in vain. Suffering not only shapes and molds us and transforms us, suffering not only reveals who we are, but suffering at the very end will be to the praise and glory of God when everything is said and done. Therefore, if you're suffering right now, will suffer, have suffered, have friends that sit in that category that are followers of Jesus, we can suffer knowing that King Jesus is being put on display through our suffering. With me? Okay, all right. Now, these, what he's going to do here is, is he's going to talk about four horses. Now, the first horse is going to be a white horse. Now, if you connect it back to Matthew 24, this first white horse is probably represented by one who's coming to deceive. Now, in a lot of ways, I believe this later to be the Antichrist that we're going to talk about. So just hold that in the back of your head. But it's this one who comes, he says, who's seeking to conquer and is conquering. In other words, one that's coming in this way to deceive. And I think the deception is, is he's coming and saying, there's going to be great peace. Everything is going to be great on the world. Now, if you think about this from this standpoint throughout history, there has always been groups of people that have come along and said, our particular system is going to bring about the best peace and the most wonderful aspect of life. Rome was this way. They taught about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Rome said, oh, if you just let us into your life, everything's going to be wonderful. Not so much. Later in the 20th century, communism came along and it said, everything's going to be wonderful if you just let us in. Ask now millions of people inside of North Korea if communism is such a great thing. 
Later you come along and there's one guy that we always talk about, a guy named Adolf Hitler. Most people don't realize this, but he started his whole campaign saying, I just want peace. Let there just be peace. And everybody knows what happened from there, though. It became a mess. The idea is, is whether you're talking about something that did happen, is happening, or will happen, there's a, there's a reality within humanity that thinks we can make life better. And I love the way that Bob talked about this. We think we can do it, but we just make things worse. People will sit there and think, oh, if we just had Republicans in office or Democrats in office, if we just had this or that to happen. Not so much. I love living inside of the United States. I love everything about it. I think it's the best system that I could live under as I look around there, but listen to me. This is a system whereby which now it is instituted by men and we're somehow taught to think that if we just buy into the whole ideal of the American system, everything is going to be great and wonderful, but listen to me. It will not be great and wonderful until Jesus Christ comes back and assumes his throne for eternity. Every other system is merely just a setting aside of humanity that will eventually lead to what we're going to look at next in verse 3, war. Now watch this. They come offering peace, but now all of a sudden the next angel says to come to this red horse. And this red horse comes forward, and as this red horse comes forward, it talks about it being bright red, and its rider was permitted, look at this, to take peace from the earth. That's the second thing. Why? So that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Why would God allow this? There is times in humanity where God suddenly will, out of his sovereignty, without losing any control, allow us to see what happens when humanity has its way. He says, fine, you want the, the peace that humanity has to offer you? There you go, you can have it. And the moment that humanity comes in offering peace and peace, right behind it, I promise you, is always the sword. The way that he connects it is, is that there is peace for a while, but in the end, it's destruction. In fact, the word that he uses there is for this sword. It wouldn't have been like the huge like, thing you know, of the giant sword swinging around. It was more like a dagger. This means war in all its forms. Civil wars and even the way Jesus talks about it. Nation against nation and country against country. The idea was it's, it's just war in all of its different forms. Here's the pattern since the very beginning of humanity from the moment that we have two brothers that came out of the garden now with their mom and dad or that were part of coming out of the garden. It has moved along that at the end of it always ends destruction he goes on verse 5 another one comes behind this and it says I heard a third living creature say come and I looked and behold there was a black horse coming so here's what humanity does there's the white horse there's the red horse and now what happens with the black horse its rider had a pair of scales in his hand and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. In other words, we think peace that leads to war and this idea, especially when we look at like lamentations, something that's black means now there's going to be famine and hunger and rationing. I don't know how many of you remember the pictures, but coming out of World War I, after Germany was destroyed, I remember seeing pictures of people pulling up with barrelfuls, wheelbarrow full of money to buy just one loaf of bread. 
In fact, the way that he says it here, he talks about this idea of a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage. A, a quart of wheat was like what we need to a day's wage to be able to now sustain us in life. It was eight to 16 times more than actually it was valued at. And so in other words, just to sustain yourself for one day, you had to work a whole day. In other words, you couldn't do anything else. You were working every single day just to make ends meet so that I could eat and I could exist. That was for one person. In order to feed a family, his whole point is, is that it's now one denarius for three quarts. It means all of humanity, it begins to move in this direction in which it thinks it has the answer to peace. At the outcome, he says, will now be this group of people inside of these societies that will now have to eat barley. Now, what does barley have to do with anything? Barley was like animal food. It was the way in which now he's saying is it gets so bad that in order just to feed your family, you're gonna have to feed them animal food. This is the peace that humanity offers and he's just building this along. There's this lie inside of our head that thinks we can make the world a better place. That doesn't mean we're not supposed to work to bring grace to the world, but humanity and its systems can't. He even talks about this idea of do not harm the oil and wine. In other words, if I'm paying for those things, the staples of life like oil and wine, I can't even afford those things now. Now again, we're asking the question, why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow terrible things to happen? In one level, we see this. I think he's allowing humanity to see. And so in other words, again, if you believe it's already happened, is happening, or will happen, he's just trying to show us when humanity grabs something at the end of it, it is just going to be a mess. And there's still one more horse. In telling this story now, he says to them, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, And I looked and behold, it says a pale horse and its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence and with wild beasts of the earth. In other words, the only now progression of all this, there's only one way this thing's gonna end is that once it starts moving in this particular direction, it's gonna be the death of people. It's gonna be Hades, which is just the grave. He's saying in all kinds of facets and forms, when you leave humanity to itself, the end product is all. Always death. Always death. A lot of you are probably sitting there going, I thought you were going to give us hope. Not a lot of hope here. Now, on one level, if we're in the middle of it right now, like our, our, our millennial brothers and sisters in Christ would say, this is already taking place. We're already seeing signs of it all over the place. And we've seen examples all throughout history. If you sit in the position where I do, where I think it's still going to come, I think this is going to be a mighty movement of the hand of God in which he's going to finally allow humanity to have the fullness of what they think they want, and at the end of it, it's just going to be destruction. And we can even see it, can't we, in our own personal lives? You know those moments where you think you're going to take control of your life, and you take control of your life, and it's not within just a little bit where you're looking now at Jesus and saying, Jesus, take the wheel, right? We're just, everything is spinning completely out of control. And this is what God is showing them is that when I in any way pull back in my sovereignty and allow you to do this, this is the end of the game. So where's the hope? 
Well, in verse 9, it says, When he opened this fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. This is beautiful. What he's trying to show them is, is now taking them into heaven, and there's these groups of people that have been faithful to God. He, he calls them the ones who have been slain, just like the, the one that had been slain, this one that was the Lamb of God that we talked about back in chapter 5. They were sitting there, and what we're going to see now is that they're asking the same question that we asked, except now they're around the throne room of God, and they're going to ask those questions. God, where are you? Why are this group of people going through suffering? Even in their, now this state in which they exist, around the throne room of God and seeing God for who he is they're looking down on humanity in this way and going God O sovereign Lord holy and true meaning you are the just one how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth God you see what's going on you see that this mess that's happening that along now comes these governments and different groups of people and they oppress Christians God where are you they're asking the same question that we ask. This is hard because a lot of you are like, I don't know if I like this side of God. Let me stop you for a second before you go there. When they call him holy and true, this means that he is just. I do not want to serve a God who is not just. Meaning he's gonna solve all those wrongs that need to be righted. And that's what they're asking really at the end of it. It's not so much that this is their suffering, but God, when are you going to set all things straight? God, this world that's a mess and in chaos, when are you going to set these things straight? I love verse 11. It says, then they were each given a white robe. In other words, now it's almost the picture of Jesus coming to them, I mean the Father coming to them and saying, you've been vindicated, it's okay. You sustained, you have walked the course. You are one who's been validated, that's been shown to one of mine. And that's what that white robe represents. And then he just says this to him, rest a little longer, wait, just wait. Just wait. I took my son one time to go see uh, something up in the mountains. And he kept saying, gosh, Dad, how long? Are we almost there? Dad, my feet hurt. This is so awful. Dad, when are we gonna get there? Dad, I think I'm out of water almost. Dad, I think my feet are gonna fall off. Dad, 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 Dad. In the back of my head, I'm like, shut up, kid, we're almost there, you know? I guess, and I, and I, I thought it, I didn't say it. But I just looked at it, I go, bud, we're almost there, we're almost there, we're almost there. And I kept telling him, we're almost there. Just, just hold on, dude, just keep coming with me. We're almost there. And we came around this corner and there's this giant waterfall and this great meadow. And as we popped around the corner, all of a sudden, he was no longer hurting. In fact, he went and climbed a tree and he got up on it. He's bouncing all over the place. He's going everywhere that he needs to go. In other words, God is saying to him, just wait and rest. We're almost there. Trust me. I've got it all under control. You're about ready to see something that's going to blow your mind. I've got this. And to their prayer of when you were going to take care of things comes seal six. When he pulls back the sixth seal, it says this, when he opened it, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, again, following Matthew 24. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig tree sheds its winter, its, uh, winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, please just fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? In other words, God was saying, do you want your answer? Here it is. Now again, a lot of you are going, I thought you were going to answer questions about suffering. I thought you were going to tell me what's going on. Before we get to that answer, we have to understand why God does what he does. And one of the answers is, is our God is just, and eventually there will come a time in which this whole world will face punishment. This whole world is about to face that. It's the reality that, Gen- that Revelation is going to walk us through. And let me, let me just be as super clear as I can possibly be, especially for someone that doesn't know Jesus. At the end of the path of Revelation, for those that don't know Jesus, is not just rocks that need to fall on us, but he talks about this reality of a lake of fire. It's this gospel that proclaims to people that, that there is hope and there is joy, there's contentment, there's satisfaction in the knowledge of knowing the God of the universe, but there's another path that flows out of this that Jesus talked about. There's this wide path, this wide gate, and it seems so easy and it seems so right, but his point is at the end of it is going to be destruction, and a lot of times people are like, oh, I don't really want to talk about this. We have to. Anyone that doesn't know Jesus Christ, that hasn't experienced his rescuing in our lives, that hasn't been this one that has been declared to be the son or daughter of the king, at the very end of this path, there's a seriousness for rebellion against this God. There's a seriousness for not following him and knowing him and loving him and choosing to ignore him and not coming fully in to be accepted into this group of people. There is ramifications for that. And so today, I hope I'm speaking on behalf of God in the correct way, Today is the day of seeking repentance. Today is the day of knowing Jesus Christ because there will come a day where you cannot hide anymore and when you have to stand in front of that God, it will be the most terrifying moment you could ever experience. And it's real. It's not a facade. But the question again we're asking is, I thought you were gonna talk about suffering. Do you realize the Bible actually talks about the suffering of those that reject God as even praise to him? Now, I know we don't like to hear that, but it's the way of seeing that God is just. But again, I think we're sitting there asking the question, then who can stand? Who is able then to stand in the midst of this? I'm glad you asked. In chapter seven, it's almost like the dust starts to settle. Now again, imagine John. He's watching all this going, what in the world? And everything's taking place around him. He's seeing the suffering of people in those first four horses. He's watching the saints crying out. He's watching the onslaught of God as he brings punishment upon the world. And all of a sudden, John is sitting there and he says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no, one might blow, or no wind might blow on the earth or the sea against the tree. In other words, everything gets held back at this particular moment. Again, whether you believe this did happen is happening will happen everything is being held back and now the idea is is that the dust is starting to settle john's kind of looking around and suddenly it says in verse 2 i saw another angel ascending and rising uh, from the rising of the sun 
with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm earth or sea or trees. I love this. Even though whatever those beings are that went out and destroyed, they totally bend to the command of God. They can only go so far. And God says now, stop. I've got to seal the servants of God on their foreheads, meaning I'm declaring who are mine. The dust is settling. John's sitting there. What in the world is going on? This angel comes out, and this is what happens next. And I heard the number of sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. This is what he's hearing. And whenever we see this word 144,000, it's probably connected to the idea, you're going to see this, of 12,000 from this tribe and 12,000 from this tribe, meaning it is the whole gathering in some way of the people of God. It's complete. It's full. In other words, when everything is said and done, and this is what God's been promising, is when everything is said and done, what will be left will be this people that will be God's. It's a story of all the way back in Genesis. God declared, I'm going to have a people for myself. He declared this to Abraham. You're going to be a blessing to the nation so I can have a people for myself. Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, talked about the idea of gathering a people for God. In other words, what God said he was going to do back away in Genesis, all of a sudden in this particular verse, it's standing out in front of us saying what God said he was going to do, he does it. I like that. Here they are all these people, and he's hearing about this people after people again. Whether you view this as something that's already happened, something that is happening, something that is literally 144,000, this again, this is where I stand on it. Whatever your view is, is that what God said he was going to do, he will do. Now John heard that, and it says after this, I looked. And behold, he says, this great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne of the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever amen in other words God what you said you were going to do you did it all of us in here that are standing here today we're all part of this grand march that happened way back at creation when God and Eve God formed Adam and Eve and then cut from it came all of humanity his work through Noah his work through Abraham his work through the people of Israel and Moses his work through the, the whole kingdom of Israel in and through David the coming of Jesus Christ the church that now has gone all over the world finally everything comes to this conclusion when the dust settles and John goes there they are Everything that God had set out to do, there is what he intended to form a people for himself. There they are. I don't know about you, but that gets me jazzed. It gets me jazzed because that means showing up on a Sunday morning is totally worth it. I'll be honest with you. If I didn't believe this, I would not be here this morning. I would be sleeping waiting to watch the Winter Olympics, and I hate the Winter Olympics, but I'd still be sitting there waiting to watch them just because I needed something to do. But I'll tell you what, all of you in here that know Jesus Christ, I just want you to get this. 
You serve a God that when he says he's gonna do something, he's gonna do something. I promise you, when it says Jesus Christ is coming back, he is coming back. And one of the elders looks at John. He says, who are those clothed in white robes and from where have they come? John says to him, sir, you know. In other words, please tell me. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. These are the ones that have come to know the Savior. These are the ones that have come and realized that we can do nothing in and of ourselves. It is a holy, the work of the Son that he accomplished in through the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection. These are the ones that he's talking about. They have been what we talked, when we said from the very beginning when I said that this idea is that at the very end, those that are truly his will now be there. What God says he's going to accomplish, he does. He who began a work in you, good work in you, is going to what? Completed on the day of Christ Jesus. You can take that to the bank. He says to John, there they are. Now on one level, I don't know what your response is. Part of me is, is just to start cheering. Be totally excited. And to just stand up and go, that's good. What other God can do that? In chapter eight, verse one, it says this, and when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was just silence for half an hour. You ever had those moments where you just sat in awe of what just took place? I think after seeing all these different things, and even back when you look at, verse, at verses 15 through 17 as they worshiped him and proclaimed who he was, that he was this God, that now there would be no more suffering, no more harm, no more difficulty, that there was this group of people that were gonna enter into forever the rest of God to enjoy him as humanity was intended to, be, to enjoy him. There wasn't gonna be cheering and there's not gonna be lauding. And, I, and don't get me wrong what I'm about to say. I love that we, sing, we clap at the end of songs because I think we can clap and praise, but I think there's sometimes after singing a song about God, aren't you just supposed to shut up and just shh? This is, I think, what's happening. Everything's been pulled together. Everything's right. In other words, why suffering? All of suffering has its point, and it finally leads to here. If you're somebody right now in the midst of sickness, I don't care what sickness it is, and you are suffering, it's not that you are or aren't going through suffering it is the fact that everything is gonna arrive at this point where your suffering will not be in vain. If you're somebody right now in the midst of a terrible marriage and you're figuring out how am I gonna walk through this and sustain myself in the midst of it, who can stand? At the end of it, all this suffering and difficulty, sometimes God does need to correct us and God is seeking to shape us in the image of his son. But those who walk through it well is his point. This is the intended goal of where you're going. There is a point to what you're going through. The parent that's walking through the kid with the kid that's difficult, there is a point to everything that's happening here. As our finances might fall apart, there's a point to what's happening here. There is nothing that comes into our life that is difficult from trials or suffering that will not find itself in its conclusion at this point particular point when we all stand in front of God and we marvel at the fact that he takes everything and weaves it together and he shows us the tapestry of his amazing work and we all just sit there at that point and we don't clap for him we just shut up amazed at what he has done 
So here's how I want to finish. I'm going to let it be quiet in here for just a little bit. Now, for some of you, you're sitting there going, oh, no. What am I going to do for the next three or four minutes? For the next three or four minutes, think about this. Put it into your head and wrestle with it. This is some of the most practical teaching I think that I can do. Until we understand suffering from this vantage point, life can be pointless. And so the next three minutes or so, we're just going to be quiet, all right? It's all yours. This coming week, those of you that are men in here, actually, Terry's going to expand on this a little bit more. When we go out, you can see it, you can sign up for it out there, the men's breakfast. It's this idea, what does it mean to care, to care for those and to be those in the midst of heartache and difficulty? I would encourage all you men in here to be there. I think it'll be a good time just to wrestle through this as men together. But I think there's another side of this, which is those of you that don't know Jesus, I hope you caught my heart today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to discern what is it that you're going to do with this great king. And so in the name of the Father, who began everything by speaking all things into existence. Not only did he speak it into existence, but he set in motion everything that would lead to the point we just talked about of a forming for a people for himself to enjoy him and know him and love him and be with him forever where there's no more sickness and crying and death. And in order to carry it out, it says that Jesus Christ also is in the midst of creation and he's been there all along and is the means now of those that have sinned to be able to now buy them or bring them into this right relationship with God. He died, he was buried, he rose again and he's at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for all of us, interceding in such a way that we might make it to the end. In the name of the Holy Spirit, who Ephesians 1 tells us, we are sealed until the day of redemption. In other words, nothing can stop God from getting us from point A to point B. So in the name of that Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, God bless you this week as followers of Jesus as you live in the victory of Christ who's gonna bring all things to a phenomenal conclusion. Amen? Amen. All right, God bless you.